Hebrews chapter 1. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God Your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning. And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe, You will roll them all up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of of those who would inherit salvation. Let me pray. Father, we ask, as we consider these arguments from the Old Testament that are being made by the author of Hebrews, superintended by your Holy Spirit, so that we might understand who your Son is, that we might understand that he is superior to the angels, superior to the prophets, superior to any created servant as he is himself God, our messianic king. God, our creator, eternal and immutable. We pray that we would rejoice in him, that we would see him for who he is by the working of your spirit, And we would rejoice in him and find our hope in him. Give us clarity as we study your word this morning together, as we hear it proclaimed. And cause us to rejoice and repent and bring honor to your son in Jesus' name. Amen. The last month um, or a little bit more, Jason and I have been having the privilege to participate in regular pastoral visits. As many of you know, as we've done those visits, we've learned much. I mean, one, we learned that we ought to be doing those as part of our pastoral duty, that it's not really an option for us, um, though for nearly 18 years I was not aware of that. Um, By the grace of God, I became aware of that, and we started doing them. And we've learned much through the doing of the pastoral visits. Um. Probably the thing I tell to Jason more than anything else after the visits is, is that I feel 
more and more my sense of what preaching is about being clarified. And I don't mean I see the various challenges um, that are happening in people's lives and think my job is then now to preach more practical sermons. Well, you know, these people are struggling with raising their kids. These people are struggling with employment situations. These people here are struggling with, with illness. These, these people over here are struggling in marriage. These people over here are struggling um, with the facing of death, of loved ones, etc. Well, I need to preach a series of sermons on how to be in a godly marriage, how to be godly parents, how to uh, face death, how, et cetera, et cetera. I need to just get in there, how to be a more godly employee or whatever. That's, that's not what I've been thinking as I've walked out of the visits. <clears throat> the more I meet with you and hear what's happening with you and pray for you, uh, quite the opposite is happening. The more I meet with our people, the more encouraged I am about what the Lord is doing and the more overwhelmed I am by the sense that I have nothing to offer you outside the gospel. The more I meet with folks, the more I ask myself the question that Paul asked himself in 2 Corinthians, who is sufficient for these things? Who's sufficient for these things? The weight of what is happening cumulatively is far too much for anyone to bear or unravel or really be of help with. I can't change your marriage or your children or your job situation or your health situation or whatever it is. I sit there meeting after meeting after meeting helpless to do anything in and of myself. And the more I realize, the more deeply I know how clearly I have one thing to offer you. One thing. I have the gospel to offer you. I have Jesus to offer you. I have Jesus, the Son of God, who condescended and took on humanity, took humanity himself, who lived and died and rose for the dead for you and for me to offer you. And and here's the good news for me. He's enough. Here's the good news for you. He is exceedingly sufficient to answer all your needs. I'm not sufficient for these things. I am exceedingly inefficient. Hear that? And I'm not talking about my administrative capabilities, though they're okay. I'm talking about inefficiency in the sense that lacking power. I am exceedingly inefficient to help you in and of myself. But I have a sufficiency from God to help you in as much as I hold up Christ before you by the Spirit. Which is why being in Hebrews is such a blessing to me personally, and I hope for you as well. Here we have a book where the author of this book knows that the only way to answer the struggles of his audience, the Hebrew Christians in the first century who are suffering and dying for the faith, who are losing their homes and their property, who have lost their nation, The only answer he has for them is Jesus. He has for them a essentially 13-chapter meditation upon the superiority, the supremacy, the absolute sufficiency above all else of Jesus. And so today, we're going to reflect more on Jesus. Today we're going to look really at the second of three biblical arguments that prove the superiority of Jesus over all of God's servants, even over the angels. Last week we started the first argument 
of the three arguments that were made. I told you that Jesus is upheld as not only greater than the prophets, but he's upheld as greater than the angels. And then there are three arguments made with regard to that. One, which goes from verse 5 through 6. That's the first argument. The second argument from verse 7 through 12. That's what we'll be looking at today. And the third argument is in verses 13, really, and 14. That these three arguments, quoting seven Old Testament texts, are grounding what the apostle is saying with regard to the supremacy of Jesus. They're grounding it in the Old Testament. And so we're looking at that second argument starting in verse 7. That's our task today, to focus on Hebrews 1, verses 7 through 12. And as I I do so, I want to make two major points. The first major point is this, and this is the major point that's going to come from verses 7 through 9, that the Son, here it is, the Son is greater than the angels because he is God, the Messianic King. The Son is greater than the angels Because he is God, the Messianic King. That's what I'm going to deal with this week, verses 7 through 9. Next week, I'm going to deal with verses 10 through 12, which is that the Son is greater than the angels because he is God, the eternal and immutable or unchanging creator. And so Jason read Psalm 45 this week because that's the psalm from which our text is largely taken this week about the Son being God, the Messianic King. And next week we'll be looking also at Psalm 102, which is where our next text in verses 10 and following are taken from. But this morning I want to focus on the Son as God, the Messianic King, which is verses 7 through 9. The angels, here's the argument you're going to hear before I read it. The angels are servants, the Son is God. The angels are servants, the Son is God the King. So look at Hebrews 1.7. Of the angels, he says, now he's going to quote from Psalm 104, which Psalm 104 is, in, is almost in its entirety about God being the creator of all things. He's the one who's created them, and he disposes of them as, as he wills. Now notice what it says. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels wins, and as ministers of flame of fire. Now scholars argue about what exactly it means that he makes his angels winds and his ministers of flame of fire. Um, is this referencing how the angels sometimes appear? Is this referencing the fact that God is able to um, control the winds or fire if he, 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 he chooses to control the winds and fire, etc., through angels? which we see both of those things in the Bible. We'll see the angels appear as winds or fire. We'll see the angels in some way make winds or fire happen. So is that what, what exactly is happening here? And, and the general consensus is there are two things being spoken of here about the angels, um, one of which I'll deal with this week and one of which I'll deal with next week. The first thing being that the author is trying to emphasize that when you read Psalm 104, The emphasis is that God is the creator and everything else is his creation, that he is unchanging and these things all change. We'll deal with the creator, creature, changing, unchanging question next week. The other emphasis is is that God as the creator is sovereign over all things. He's the king. He rules them and therefore everything in creation is his servant. And so the angels are his servants. They're created, they change, they serve. They do as God disposes of them. So this morning, I want to focus on the emphasis here with verses 8 and 9, the contrast between the angels as servants and God as king, the son as king. Next week, we'll focus on the contrast between the angels as created and changing and the Son as creator and unchanging. But let's look at the first emphasis. The angels are servants. They do the bidding of God. The Father speaks, 
and the angels obey. The angels receive their rank and task from God who is sovereign over all. Now look at Hebrews 1.8. So the angels, he says, they're his servants. They serve him. But of the son, he says, of the son, he says, and then he goes on to quote from Psalm 45. Specifically, Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. Now, Psalm 45 is a psalm singing of the beauty and righteousness of the Messianic King. So before we look at this direct quote, just keep your hands in Hebrews 1 and turn to Psalm 45. Jason already read it in its entirety for us, so I will not read Psalm 45 in its entirety, but I just want to see you to see the lead up to this. Psalm 45. <clears throat> To the choir master, according to the lilies, to lilies, I don't know what that means, a maskal of the son of sons of Korah, a love song. Now pay attention, that superscription, not your throne of God is forever, that one that you have, that's, ed- that's added by these translators. But the one below it, that superscription that says, to the choir master, according to the lilies, a maskal of the son of Kor- sons of Korah, a love song, that is part of the original Hebrew text. Okay, that's part of the text of the Bible. So we're told right off the bat that this is a what kind of song? A love song. It's a love song. Now let's hear the love song. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. Now what is this psalmist singing about the king. He's singing to the king. The psalmist is. A love song to the king. What's he singing? You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deed, your deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Now this love song, this imagery, incidentally, gets picked up in the book of Revelation when the son comes riding in on his horse and he has his sword on his thigh, and he puts down his enemy nations. Now look at verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Notice that the psalmist sings to this king, and he addresses him as God. This king, you are the king. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. So you're a man. The most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. So this king is man. Yet at the same time, we're told this king is God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of righteousness. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Now this is picked up, verses 5 and 6, or sorry, verses 6 and 7 are picked up in Hebrews 1. So turn back there, Hebrews 1, because we're going to wrestle with the question of, who is this said to? Who is Psalm 45? Who is the king that Psalm 45 is being sung to? Now there are scholars who say that this psalm singing of the beauty of the king singing of the righteousness and justice of the, of the king, that, that this king is David or this king is Solomon. They'll argue about whether it's Solomon or David. Interestingly, <clears throat> ancient Jews, coming right through the Qumran um, Essenes, I, I won't get into who they are, but we found their scrolls. They're from the first century pre-Christ. All the way up through them, we find that there is, there is the normal teaching that Psalm 45 
is actually a psalm about the Messiah, not David nor Solomon. It's a a psalm about this coming Messiah. They knew that this couldn't possibly be about David or Solomon because too many of the details in the psalm don't apply to them. More importantly, we have it on apostolic authority from the Holy Spirit himself that this psalm is about the Son. Who is the king being sung about in Psalm 45? The Son. How do I know that? Look at verse 8 of Hebrews 1. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 8. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. But of the Son, he says. We have it on apostolic authority that Psalm 45 is singing about the Son. So let's, let's, there's no debate to be had anymore. Is it about, when I hear Christian scholars going, is this about Solomon or David? I think, read Hebrews 1, Christian scholar. It's about the Son. You don't even have to sit around and strain your mind to figure it out. Hebrews 1 tells you who it's about. It's about the Son. It's about Jesus. Now, now I want to take this quotation of Psalm 45 in two parts. This quotation from Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7, I want to take in two parts. And here's what they are. The Son is the righteous messianic king. Say messianic. He's the Messiah, the king. He is the righteous, the just, the upright, whatever word you want to pick. He is the righteous messianic king. The second point I want to make is that the son, the son is the joyful messianic king. He is the righteous messiah king. He is the joyful messiah king. I want you to hear both of those this morning as we look at this quotation in Hebrews 1. So let's, let's look at the Son as the righteous messianic king. Look at Hebrews 1, um, 8, and we'll go through the first line of Hebrews 1, 9. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Now what do we learn about this Messiah, this king, this son? What do we learn about him here? Let's note a few items. First, the Messiah, this messianic king, the son, is God. He's God. That's the first thing we learn here. We've learned it before. We're learning it again. The Son is God. Look, look at the address. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God. The Son is addressed in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint or the LXX, in this exact same way as the Greek that's here in Hebrews 1. And that Greek there um, is, when it says your throne, O God, when it speaks to him, is what we would call evocative. What's evocative? It's, it's a way of addressing someone. Uh, I, I teach this to, I taught this to my staff not too long ago that when we check the spelling on our slides, one of the things we ought to watch out for is the use of the word O. You guys know in English we have two words that say O. You guys know that? O with just the letter O. And then the second word is O with the letter O-H. Okay. Now, when do you use O with the letter O, and when do you use O-H for the, for the word O? Which, which one do you use when? Well, O is address. O God, I'm addressing you. It's like prayer. O God. When we're singing worship songs, and we're singing, O Lord, O God, we're addressing him, just an O. O-H is exclamatory. Oh, God. It's like, oh, no, I just used the Lord's name in vain because I made an exclamation. Like, listen, when you put it wrong in the slide, in one case, 
you're addressing God. In the other case, you're violating the third commandment. You understand the difference? That H makes a big difference. Okay? My point here being, this is a vocative. This is, oh God, he's being addressed. How's the son being addressed? He's being addressed as God. He is God. The father addresses the messianic king as God. He is divine. He is not a mere man. He is the God man. He is truly God and truly man. Truly God and truly man. The second thing we note is the duration of the Messiah's rule. Look, look at how long his rule is. Your throne, O God, your throne, speaking of his rule, your throne, O God, the Son's rule, your throne is forever and ever. He can't possibly lose his throne. How long does the Son sit on his throne? Forever and ever. The Messianic king sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, his throne, and how long will he sit on his throne? Eternally, forever and ever. The duration of the Messiah's rule is eternal. He is God on the throne as king with an eternal rule. Now look at what we also notice is the character of the Messiah's rule. The character of his rule is righteousness. Look at the next phrase. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness or righteousness. A scepter is a symbol, if you will, for the rule of the king. He holds the scepter, telling you about his rule in some way. It's signifying his rule. And the scepter of uprightness or righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. In other words, the father is saying to the son is, your kingdom is a righteous kingdom. You hold the scepter of righteousness, the scepter of justice in your hand. That's the character of the Messiah's kingdom. It's a scepter of righteousness is in his hand. He's just, he's upright. There is no sin in his kingdom. There is no unrighteousness in his kingdom. The enemies are in his kingdom, finally put under his feet forever. Sin and death and sorrow and all those things will be placed under his feet and under the feet of his people forever at his return. His kingdom is a rule of righteousness. Now, now why is his kingdom a rule of righteousness? Look at verse 9, the first phrase. You, this is the Father speaking to the Son, you have loved righteousness and hated, hated wickedness or hated lawlessness. It's another way to translate that. It's actually a word that, that takes the word namos, which is law, and puts an A in front of it, and the A negates it. Okay? Lawlessness. You hate lawlessness. What is lawlessness? Those who do not put themselves under the authority of God, who live however they want, not according to his law. They do not meditate on his law day and night. They do not walk in accordance with his law. They live however their flesh pleases them. They are lawless ones. And when a kingdom is pervaded by lawless, disobedient, rebellious people, that is a kingdom of lawlessness. The kingdom of Satan is a kingdom of lawlessness. The kingdom of this world is a kingdom of lawlessness. That's why we are born as children of disobedience. By nature, children of wrath. Sons of disobedience. That is our state into which we are born because of the fall into sin. And how does the son what is his, if you will, what is his view of lawlessness? He hates it. You ever thought of that? that? You should rejoice that Jesus is a hater. Right? Like, you're a hater. Yes. If you're a hater of the right things, that's good. You understand that? If you love, then you must hate. 
say, what do you mean? If I love my daughter, I will hate anyone who tries to harm her. True? Now, I don't mean by that that I won't then love that enemy and pray for them, whatever. But you understand exactly what I'm getting. If sin harms my child, then I will hate that sin. I will. This is why it's impossible for us in our day to talk about um, love as just an affirmation of whatever people want to do. That's not love. You're not loving people by affirming them in their sin. You're not loving people by enshrining in the law bondage to sin. We're doing that, folks. We enshrine in our law bondage to sin. That isn't loving people. Oh, I'm just, I'm affirming them. I'm making them feel good. I'm letting them go out on their own. Then you don't love them. You don't love them. If you love them, you love what honors the Lord and what's good for them. You know what's good for them? What honors the Lord? Righteousness. You know what's horrible for them and dishonors the Lord? Wickedness. Lawlessness. If you want to be like Jesus, you love righteousness and you hate lawlessness. You don't have a little bit of a, of a kind of distaste for lawlessness. You have a settled disposition against lawlessness in your own life first and then in the life of Christ's people and his world. Jesus, the Son, loved righteousness and hated wickedness or lawlessness. Jesus, the Son, is the righteous mediator. He is the just messianic king. The Son was sent by the Father to take humanity to himself, becoming the God-man, the person we know as Jesus. And he exercised his office as our mediator. He loved righteousness, and he hated wickedness, and then he, thus he came as the second Adam to keep the law perfectly in our place. Where Adam failed to, where Israel failed to, where we failed to. He came to do what the law required. Both in precept, do these things, and in penalty. If you do not do these things, you shall die. He came to keep the law on our behalf in precept, and he came to keep the law in behalf of our penalty. He was the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. He was and is holy, sinless, and undefiled. He was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin, obedient to death, even death on a cross. And he did this for us and our salvation. The son did this because his habitual frame of heart is love of righteousness and hatred of wickedness. Now, do you see how his love of righteousness and hatred of wickedness is actually good news for us who believe? We see his love of righteousness and his hatred of wickedness throughout the whole of his work as the incarnate son, as the mediator. However, we see that with crystal clarity at the cross. The cross clearly proclaims to us how much our Trinitarian Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit loves righteousness and hates wickedness. There upon the cross, the Father gave his Son as a propitiation, a satisfaction for sin, a wrath bearer for our sin, for our lawlessness. There to the cross, the Son willingly went to atone for our sin, to pay for our wickedness, to propitiate the Father's wrath against our lawlessness. There upon the cross, the Holy Spirit uphold, upheld sorry, our Lord Jesus as he completed his work of atonement for us. 
And what was the goal of all this? Look at Romans 1. Turn with me to Romans 1. I want to look at the goal here. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Notice Paul saying I'm proud of the gospel. For it is, verse 16, sorry, Romans 1, 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. What's the power of God for salvation? Not your pastor, not some priest, the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or the Gentile. In other words, to all of humanity. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Hear that? In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. What, why is the gospel the power of God for salvation? Because the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. That's why it's the power of God for salvation. Now, why do we need the righteousness of God that we get the just shall live by faith or the just by faith shall live? Why do we need that righteousness that comes in the gospel? Why do we need that? Look at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's us. We are ungodly, unrighteous men who by our unrighteousness suppress the truth. And therefore, because we are unrighteousness, or sorry, we are unrighteousness. That's probably true too. But since we are unrighteous, um, we need the righteousness of God from outside of ourselves. But God cannot count us righteous and not vindicate his own justice and holiness. And so he gives us the gospel. Now Paul's going to sum that up. Romans chapter 3 and verse 21. Look there. He goes on for a couple chapters proving to you your unrighteousness, in case you're wondering. Letting us know that we're all unrighteous because we've all sinned. Verse 21 of chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. See we are declared righteous. Forgiven our sins. Justified. By his grace as a gift through what? The redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He paid for it. Whom God put forward, verse 25, as a propitiation. God put Jesus forward as a propitiation, a wrath bearer by his blood. To be received by faith. This was to show, pay attention to this, it was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just righteous and the justifier of the one who has faith in jesus so if you want to understand how god declares us wicked ungodly men righteous which would be a false declaration would it not If you're unrighteous and ungodly and lawless, is it a false declaration to call you righteous? Yes. If you want to understand how God got to the point, he could call us righteous. It's through the propitiation of Jesus Christ that's given to us as a gift through faith. Jesus, the righteous one, paid for our sins at the cross so that God could be just, righteous, and the justifier of the one 
who has faith in Jesus. So that God's righteousness could be upheld, his justice could be upheld, and at the same time, we could be forgiven our sins and declared righteous. It's in the person of Jesus Christ that happens, not apart from him. And it's not because faith has some kind of virtue inherent in it. It's because the object of your faith is Jesus, and the Spirit unites you to Jesus through faith. And so what's his is yours, and what's yours is his. And so because he is righteous and just, so too are you righteous and just in him, by the Spirit, through faith. God's righteousness is held, upheld as he punishes our sin in Christ, and God's grace is exalted as he credits the righteousness of Jesus to us. Now, the second part of what we learn about, and this will go kind of quickly, is the messianic, about this messianic king, is that the son is the joyful messianic king. Not just the righteous messianic king, but the joyful messianic king. In other words, the kingdom of God is a kingdom of joy. Precisely because the king is anointed with joy. Look at Hebrews 1.9. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Now look at that second part. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions or above your companions. Now I want to begin with the two problems in front of us. Who is God in the first use of God, therefore God, and who, and who is God in the second use of God? Now, now, scholars argue over whether the first use is an address, evocative of address, or not. In other words, is Jesus being addressed as God in the first, in the first use of God? In other words, therefore God, your God has anointed you. Or is... Um, this a way of emphasis, a way to bring emphasis. In other words, therefore God the Father, even your God, Jesus, has anointed you. Now scholars are split on this. I lean toward the idea that this is emphasis. That the Father, the God of the Messianic King, has anointed the Messiah. But it's entirely possible grammatically that the Son is being addressed in the first use of God, God, and the Father in the second use of God. It's possible grammatically to go either way, so grammar doesn't solve the problem. But either way you go, you're left with the same problem. Here's the problem. How can Jesus, the Son, be God and also be one who's subordinate to God, the Father? How can that be? Now, John Owen provides three answers. I just want you to hear them. Here's, here's, I'll make a few comments on it, but I want you to hear what he says. God the Father is said to be the God of the Son upon a threefold account. You ready? First, in respect of his divine nature. As he is his Father, so his God. Whence he is said to be God of God, as having his nature communicated unto him by virtue of eternal generation. Wow, that's a lot. Here's the bottom line. What he means here is that the Son has his person from the Father. He is God of God, light of light, Son of the Father. He doesn't mean that the Son is less than God or somehow below the Father in his essential being. He is one essence with the Father. What Owen is trying to say is that because the Son in his person is eternally begotten of the Father, it's appropriate for the Son to call the Father God, as he, the Son, is God of God. They're not two separate beings. They're one being but two persons. Second, Owen says, he could call him appropriately God, the Son could call him God, in respect of his human nature as he was made of a woman made under the law. So God also was his God as he is the God of all creatures. In other words, what Owen is saying is that because the Son took on humanity, in his humanity, God is his God. Thus, it's appropriate for him to call the Father God. He is one person in two natures, and according to his humanity, the Father is his God, and so it's appropriate for him to call him such. Owen says, third, in respect to his whole person, God and man, as he was designed by his Father to the work of mediator, 
in which sense he calls him his God and Father. In other words, what Owen is saying is this, that because the Son took on humanity, and in one person, Jesus is truly God and truly man, then as that one person sent by the Father to be mediator, he appropriately calls the Father God. Now, here's Owen's conclusion. In this last sense, as the incarnate mediator, is it that God is here said to be his God, and that is his God in special covenant, as he was designed and appointed to be the head and king of his church. For therein did God the Father undertake to be with him, to stand by him, to carry him through his work, and in the end, to crown him with glory. So God the Father covenanted with the Son of God to send him as mediator, to uphold him in the whole course of his work as Messiah, to give him a kingdom, and to crown him with glory. That's precisely what Hebrews is getting at. He is the Son of God, sent by the Father to become man and to do this work of mediation. Yes, he is the Holy Spirit-anointed Messiah. He has the Spirit without measure. We see that through his whole ministry, from the beginning of his incarnation, at his conception and birth, to his baptism, to his miracles, and even to his being resurrected from the dead by the Spirit of holiness. But this text is saying, is taking us really a step further. This text is saying that upon the discharge of his duties as mediator, he was anointed with the oil of gladness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness, shown most clearly in his work as the Messiah. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. In other words, he was crowned with joy. He received the Holy Spirit as the eternal king would, and he poured out the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. He was looking forward to the joy of sitting upon his throne and pouring out his spirit for the salvation of the world. How do I know that? Because the author of Hebrews tells me he was looking forward to that joy. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12. He says, To look to Jesus, the founder, verse 2, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He is the joyful messianic king. He has the spirit of joy without measure above all his companions. But even as he has more joy than his companions, there is a clue here that he is anointing um, us with his joy. He is anointed with joy, and he's pouring out that joy on us. His anointing with joy is good news for us. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9, look there. But we see him, speaking of Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, the Son was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Now look at chapter 3 and verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share, that same language as for companions, by the way, when he receives joy above his companions, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Look, he shared our humanity. He shared our penalty for sin so that we might share his glory and his joy. As the God-man, Jesus was anointed the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he shares, please hear this, he shares the joy of his righteous kingdom with us. He makes us partakers in that. That's why we read what we read in John 17, for example, when Jesus prays and says, Father, glorify your name. Father, glorify your Son. Because Jesus knows the hours come for the cross. And Jesus goes on to say that, that this is eternal life, to know the Father and his Son whom he has sent. What's eternal life? It's to share 
in the joy of the Son's righteous kingdom forever, to know Him and the Father and to know that joy. That's why Jesus will pray in John 17, 24, Father, I desire that they, those whom you've given me, would be with me where I am. He's talking about his heavenly kingdom. To see my glory, the glory that I had with you before the foundation of the world. In this prayer, Jesus is going to his glory with the Father, and that's good news for us. So here's what I hope you've gathered this morning. The Son's humiliation and exaltation is your righteousness and joy. His cross and resurrection is your righteousness and joy. It is your good news. He's all I have to offer you. I have to offer you him, and he's more than enough. He's more than enough. That's why we teach you to sing in Christ alone. My hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm, what heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when strivings cease, my comforter, my all in all, Here, in the love of Christ, I stand. Let's pray. Father, we ask that we would trust your Son, that we would look to him as our righteousness and our joy, that we would know that he is God, the Messianic King, at your right hand, ruling and reigning for our good and his glory. May we trust him and look to him more and more, And may we become more and more like him by the work of your spirit in loving righteousness and hating wickedness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.